folks, and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay-Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. And guess what? It's about damn time we did a bonus episode. I recorded a bonus episode on acting technique this past Christmas, and we released it on our Patreon, and now we're making it available to you all. In addition to working professionally as an actor and a comedian, I've also worked from time to time as an adjunct faculty member at schools like Stella Adler Studios in New York City and New York Film Academy, and I'm a member of the Lincoln Center Director's Lab. Not too shabby. So what you're about to hear is a synthesis of 20th century American acting technique interpreted by American practitioners who adapted it from Konstantin Stanislavski's system of acting. I'll be delving into standard areas of study such as given circumstances, characterization, objective, obstacles, dramatic actions, emotional memory, exterior work, and improvisation. Remember to check out new episodes of Things Are Going Great For Me on our new air date every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, we're very happy to be sponsored for this series by Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be exceptional. Icelandic Glacial natural spring water sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon and at local retailers near you. Now please enjoy this special bonus episode of Things Are Going Great For Me. Okay, so I'm doing something a bit different. I wanted to put out a bonus episode, and it occurred to me that it might be fun to give a little general philosophy on acting technique. We talk about acting technique a lot on the podcast, so this is meant to be an overview. For anyone not familiar with technique or they're currently studying it at a school or conservatory, it's the way I like to work. This should give a person an idea of how to approach text and apply technique to both theater and film and television. To any pros out there, you might find this to be a bit beginner, but I also have many working actor friends who tell me they're not really sure what their specific technique is. Even legendary actors have been quoted as saying things like, I don't know what acting is, but I love it, or that acting is a custom job, much like when writers say they have to relearn how to write with every story they create. Some actors simply say they have an ability to believe in what's going on in the story. To be clear, there is no one correct way to train in terms of technique. There are endless ways to approach this craft, and all of them are interesting to me, whether it's Grotowski or Viola Spolin or just camera tricks. It's all interesting to me. This, uh, this also isn't geared towards booking work, though hopefully it's useful there as well. I will say it's much easier to teach acting than to do it. It takes a lifetime to refine one's craft, but I always say follow the fun. Acting is supposed to be fun. Even when you do dramatic work, you should have fun creating both searchingly and constructively. For advice on booking work, that's another subject. It's called audition technique. This is knowledge. You take your knowledge in other areas and apply it to standardized tests. Maybe you take a class on how to take the test itself. That's audition technique, learning how to beat the test of the audition room. Most of the time when acting technique gets brought up in a public forum... It's usually to parse some of the more bizarre behaviors of self-proclaimed method actors. 
The method was a Lee Strasberg interpretation of what was originally called the system, which was created by an actor named Konstantin Stanislavsky in Russia at the end of the 19th century. Stanislavsky ran a theater company called the Moscow Art Theater, and they had a playwright, a resident playwright named Anton Chekhov. So Anton Chekhov was a brilliant writer and also an accomplished doctor, and he started writing in a kind of a different style in terms of literature for theater. Previous to Chekhov, you know, you'd have art forms like Shakespeare, Greek drama, Commedia dell'arte, restoration comedy, opera. And in these forms, you would have what were considered archetype characters, like a king, a queen, uh, a, a, you know, a soldier warrior type, uh, a heroine, and a fool or a clown. And the writing was very representational, meaning that what the character said, that's what they meant. If a character said, I love you, that's what they meant. If they said, I will destroy you, that's what they meant. What Chekhov realized is that that's not how we talk to each other in real life. In real life, we talk to each other in code. You know, we say one thing, we mean something else. You get into a fender bender on your way to work and you walk into the lobby of your workplace, which, you know, or you log on to Zoom. <laughs> I don't know why you're driving if you're logging on to Zoom. And somebody says, hey, Claude, how you doing? And I say, fine. I'm not really fine. I'm furious. You know, you cover. You say something, uh, but you mean something else. This was considered a sort of a naturalistic approach to dramatic writing. And it was part of a, a movement towards what was called naturalism that was coming out of Russia at this particular time. And you can see examples of it in painting and other art forms. Uh, and it was incredibly fresh. Uh, in terms of dramatic work that was being put on the stage at the time. So having talked a little bit about Chekhov, then Konstantin Stanislavsky, whose theater company this was, recognized that in order to do this new kind of material, where an actor, it wasn't enough anymore to simply say the lines with a good, strong voice and a good, strong posture, but in fact, the actor had to interpret the lines this was the beginning of this idea of getting into the mind of the character, not just saying what they say, but thinking about why do you think they're saying this? And so Stanislavski devised a system to handle this kind of naturalistic dialogue. And now that I've talked about those uh, fascinating Russian artists, I'm going to move on to now talk about approaching the text, and I'm going to start with a quote from Stella Adler's book, The Art of Acting. In her book, she writes, the actor must make everything they deal with real. If I have a chair on stage with me, that chair is an object with which I have a relationship. Sometimes a chair can help you define a play. When we see the father in Edward Albee's The Death of Bessie Smith, we know almost everything we need to know about him because he's sitting on rundown wicker furniture. There's nothing that says more who you are than run-down wicker furniture. There's something about it that says, what happened to you? You used to be white, and now you're chipped. So, you know, when we approach the text, we want to approach the text like a detective. We are looking for clues. And you can find those clues in things as simple as the set decorations, an old chair, 
you know, a wicker chair that has lost a bit of its paint. What does that say about the world? What does it say about the characters? You're really thinking like a detective and you can get clues about what's going on in the world and what's going on in the character uh, from things as simple as the stage description or, you know, in, in, including the dialogue and behavior of the characters. The description of the world, the social context, which brings me to the circumstances. The circumstances are writing down the when and where of the story. How do those affect the character, uh, their actions, their appearance, etc.? Konstantin Stanislavski, in his book, An Actor Prepares, has a really nice definition of given circumstances. He calls it the epoch, the time, the country, the condition of life, the background, the literature, the psychology, the soul, way of living, and social position of a particular time period or of a particular place. I like that definition. I think it's really full. I like to use the example of the movie Titanic when talking about given circumstances, because this is a movie that I have found that every single person has seen. Titanic is a good example to use because it's based on a real historical event, which I believe is April 14th in 1912. Am I getting that right? What do we know about the boat in Titanic? We know it's described infamously as the unsinkable boat, which sets up immediately a theme if you are able to parse that as an actor, you know, and a good reader of text, the unsinkable boat sets up a sort of a competition between people who built the boat and, and what? Nature. Humans versus nature. An unsinkable boat is a bit of a slap in the face to nature. What's another word for nature? God. What's another word for nature and God? Fate. So right away as an actor, you know, when you're approaching this story, you should be able to say to yourself, oh, well, there's something going on here that's, you know, has to do with the idea of human beings hitting their limitations in terms of navigating a natural world. Um, Then we come to the story of Jack and Rose. At the time of the story of Titanic, you had, you know, a colonial British culture, which was essentially this boat was sort of a floating example of the culture that it was coming from, in which the way in which people moved up in class oftentimes had to do with marriage. And that responsibility often was put on the shoulders of uh, a young woman in society who would be trying to marry up in a way to bring the rest of her family up in class. So that's the story of um, Rose need, you know, being <laughs> essentially forced to marry Billy Zane. Um, when she falls in love with Jack, it becomes love versus class or class versus love. So I like the Titanic as an example for given circumstances because of those reasons. So moving on to character. How do you know who a character is? I mean, you should start by studying the play and writing down all the facts about the character, you know, their, their relationships, information about their relationships with their parents, their upbringing, their health, their friends and interests and things like that. Uh, should you 100% trust what your character says about themselves? No. Why not? People oftentimes, you know, seek to embellish certain things about their credentials. We also know the, you know, some of us do know the world of online dating and the way in which people embellish their, (laughs) their profiles. You know, uh, what about other characters and what they say about your character? Are they more truthful? 
There, does their objectivity give us more, uh, you know, dependable insight? Uh, maybe. Can you 100% trust what other people say about your character? No. Why not? Uh, because other people lie. <laughs> other people have agendas. You know, if your character is going up for the same uh, job promotion as this other character, and that character says they saw your character coming in late for work that morning, you know, that's a lie. But it is linked to their agenda. So if we can't 100% trust what our character says about themselves, and we can't 100% trust what other characters say about our character, how do you know who our characters are for a fact? If it's not what they say, it's always what they do. If a character says... I'm just going to have one little glass of wine with dinner. And then we watch them drink an entire bottle of wine. That says something about the character. Their behavior will tell the truth. If it's not what they say, it's always what they do. Here's a question. Can characters change? It's a good question to think about in a time in which, you know, we so often think about the, you know, defining other people by their behavior. Um, you know, my thinking on this idea is that, uh, characters, uh, can change, but it will depend on their behavior. So, you know, if a character was an asshole in certain ways, if they are, uh, you know, if their behavior has improved, it may just only say that this is who they are right now. So if you're thinking in terms of a hero arc for a character or, uh, you know, trying to answer the question of do do characters change? Can they change? Is my character supposed to change in the story? Just simply look at who are they in this moment. So those are the given circumstances, and that's a way to approach character. So how do we talk a little bit about, you know, uh, I'll just say it like this, crying. (laughs) That's, That's the way you want to bring it up, particularly to folks who our beginners with acting is, uh, you know, asking like anybody here afraid of, you know, when they read in a script, the character cries. It's a scary thing. It's not easy for me to do. I don't think it's necessarily easy for all actors who are working. Um, It is freakishly easy for some, um, which is cool. You know, um, does an actor need to cry for real on stage? I don't know. The audience is 200 feet away. I don't necessarily think that eight shows a week an actor on stage needs to be really crying in a scene because there are other things that they can do to communicate the story, like use their voice. Uh, uh, Something vocal with physical gesture, they, their hand at their brow. And when you're sitting, you know, 50 feet away or something in the theater, it can translate into storytelling. I think storytelling is the key. What's the difference with TV and film? There's a camera right there in your eyes. Well, what happens when people can see your eyes? Oftentimes they can see a person having thoughts. And we will ascribe those thoughts, what we project what we think is going on with that person. If it doesn't look like they're crying, if it doesn't look like they're grounded emotionally in the scene, we'll call them on it. We'll call it bullshit. That's not good acting, we'll say. 
Um, and at this point, I think it's important to talk about the idea of truth. And this goes back a little bit to some of that method acting stuff. Is there value in uh, an actor only using their personal truth in terms of telling a story? I don't know that it's not that it's necessary, to be honest. It can be incredibly useful. I think using your own personal experiences and memories to help to supplement your scene work uh, can stretch the scene in an interesting way or the character or allow you to find moments that will look great on camera and could work on stage. Um, but do you need to rip your heart out uh, in order to act? Do you need to... Uh, feel exactly what the character is feeling in order to tell the story is a better is a better way to put that. I don't know for sure. I know that I love it when I see it. I think that's where some of the bravery comes in when we talk about that's brave work or someone's risking a lot in their work. And, you know, I think that's cool too. But if somebody has a specific emotional trauma, do they need to dig that up to play a character who's going through the same thing? Uh, You know, everybody's going to be their own person when it comes to this. Everybody knows what they're comfortable with. You know, I would say you're allowed to take care of your heart a little bit. There's been a debate about this recently. Uh, a couple actors on a big prominent show talking a little bit about, you know, should you just act the stuff or, you know, do you need to be living it? This conversation will will go on for a long time. We're not going to answer that right here. I, I personally am comfortable using my own uh, feelings and memories to apply to scene work. Um, but... Every person is dis- different. And I, the thing that I want to say, the thing that I think is most important is this idea of truth, which I think can get muddy. Truth is tr- is really uh, oftentimes going to be what the audience takes away from what they're seeing. And we know that there are going to be multiple truths, multiple different truths that get taken away from the uh, by the audience. Two different people are going to see uh, the same scene and take two different things away from it. Like that, like the Kurosawa movie, Rashomon, you know? So, you know, I have had uh, sort of more method or Strasbourg trained actors who've given me advice over the years that have said, if you do for yourself, you'll do for the audience. And maybe that's true. Can you be thinking about your shopping list and do a gr- do great scene work? I think you can. Not that that's a challenge that I'm telling anyone to do. I just think it is possible. You know, what 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 I would encourage you to do more than anything or encourage actors to do is to try your best to have to put yourself in a place where you're only having thoughts as the character. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but let's talk first about crying in a scene. So connecting to the scene, emotional memory and sense memory. Emotional memory or emotional recall deals with the problem of finding a personal substitution in order to release that big burst of tears, the shriek of terror, the fit of laughter, etc. That is from Uta Hagen's book, Respect for Acting. I like Uta Hagen's approach. She is uh, one of the most thorough and practical practitioners of acting technique with she provides great exercises for people to try uh, that they can do on their own or in rehearsal with a scene partner um, 
She has wonderful lists of questions that you can ask yourself about the character so that so you can better understand the character, which I think is very helpful. Other people have said, you know, when you're trying to become a character, you want to look at, you, you know, you, you make two lists. You make a list of this is how I'm like the character, and then you make another list. This is how I'm not like the character. You know, and then you uh, you build bridges to those things that are not like you. And I think that's a fine way to go about it. Uh, so Uta Hagen provides great questions that will help you identify how am I like this character and how am I not like the character. Um, so, you know, what, is it, what does emotional memory mean or emotional recall? You know, sometimes I think you've, we've heard this expression of, you know, oh, just think about the time that, you know, you were a kid and, you know, one of your pets died. Uh, if you're doing that, that's what's called uh, personal substitution. So you're substituting into the scene something that has actually happened to you in your own life. Um, let's say your character is getting fired at their job, but you've never been fired from your job because you're a great, <laughs> you're a great employee. So what other kind of a relationship from your own life could you substitute in for the relationship of a character getting fired from their job at work? From their job at work, it's redundant. Um, maybe getting dumped by a person. When you're trying to find a personal substitution, you're trying to sort of boil down, what is this relationship? Like boil it down to its essence or its multiple truths and then try to connect to what you know something about. And then I would say like, you know, if it says in the script, like the character cries, you know, you might read that and think to yourself, it's never going to happen. Um, there's something about uh, you know, something that uh, Boleslavsky, Richard Boleslavsky talks about with the idea of concentration and focus. And when you bring all of your work to bear, when you, you know, walk on set to or on stage to create constructively, um, you're bringing a certain amount of focus with you. And in that focus, I think that, you know, amazing things can happen. Um. You cry because you have to. Um, I think that, you know, your ability to control all things with acting mm, uh, can lead to muscling out of tears or uh, pushing. Um, and so, you know, if you're able to just have thoughts as the character and apply your homework and connect with your scene partner or if the character is alone to be to be connected with the character's thoughts. I oftentimes think in terms of like you're not alone up there or on set. You're you're there with your character. It's the two of you. You're holding hands. And you lean on each other. You know? It is a little bit I think about hearing that character's voice in your head. I do believe in that. And I think that that also comes from from some of the exterior work that, you know, I'll talk about a little bit later, the way the character walks and talks. Um, but it's all the details, the details we've talked about already with the, uh, the the description of the scene, the props the actor uses, all of it, you know, or for example, the costume. You know, costume is really meant, whatever the costume is, should should hopefully make you feel like the character. You know, that's a good way to think in terms of how do I want to help design a costume for this particular character. Think in terms of what would make you feel like the character. And then uh, if you decide to use a personal substitution, that might help you get there. You're going to have to do that in concert with your 
uh, focus and concentration. So let's talk about something called the moment before. Why do people, why do we see actors getting ready to perform before they step on stage or before they step in front of the camera? If nobody's ever going to see it, why, why did they do it? That goes back to that idea that we talked about uh, at the beginning here with uh, the approach to this kind of naturalistic writing. Um, the interpretation that an actor needs to do now in terms of figuring out uh, why does a character say what they say? They say one thing, but they mean something else. What do I think they mean when they say this? Uh, that comes from this idea of uh, sort of figuring out how to sort of be in the head of the character in a, in, and, and have a, an almost 24-7 approach or idea of what the character, wh- how the character is living. And when they make an entrance uh, or an exit to have a sense of where they were coming from and where they are, where they are headed when they leave camera. Or when they leave the stage. So, you know, I, particularly when we were talking a little bit about uh, f- television film acting, when a camera is stuck right in your eyes, the audience is going to see uh, if anything is going on in your eyes. And so to start with a moment before, before the camera's roll, before it is is hugely helpful in helping to bring thoughts of the character into the scene uh, as the camera begins to roll. It looks to the audience usually like the character is existing instead of seeing an actor suddenly turn a switch on or see the strings of their performance. On stage, a moment before is helpful because you still have to storytell with your body. Even if they can't see your eyes, you do have to think in terms of what is the storytelling I want to do with my body? What are the what are the gestures? What's the posture? Um, because we read body language. We take uh, and try to analyze people's inner uh, feelings and inner life from watching the way that they behave physically. And so that's in part why we do a moment before in theater, in addition to why we do a moment before in television and film. All right, we're going to talk about objective. What does the character want? What is their overall objective throughout the text? And what's their immediate objective in this particular scene? So I want you all to think about, is there ever a time in your life that you are saying something, but you don't want anything? Is that even possible? Can you speak without wanting? It sounds maybe like a trick question. What if you're alone in a room? Let's put it on a character. A character is alone in a room. They're speaking to themselves. Do they want something? Could they want something? Do they need to want something in order to speak alone to themselves? I would argue, sure. Sometimes people speak to themselves uh, (laughs) like I'm doing now. (laughs) Because they want to impart knowledge to people through a podcast. This is stupid. Or how about, you know, a character speaking to themselves to coach them through a moment that's about to come. You know, they're walking, they're about to go through that door and get married. Um, They, uh, not like the Kool-Aid guy or like the Hulk. I just mean they'll open the door (laughs) and go into the wedding reception. I don't know what I'm talking about. 
Um, what is it, you know, does a character, sometimes people speak to themselves out loud because they're lonely. They want to feel less lonely. If you think about it, and this does take some examining, and I think that a lot of people, you know, people can get a little bit like tense about when you say like, well, people want something anytime they speak because, you know, oftentimes people want to think of themselves as not, I don't have any, I I have no agenda, man. I'm just like living. Um, And I think in part it's because we haven't spent that much time thinking or observing the ways in which we behave, particularly if we spend a lot of time studying other subjects in school, like history and, you know, sciences and things like that, you know, uh, I don't know how many people take a psychology class before they get to college Um, or, you know, a class on human behavior. I don't think that most people uh, have been given uh, the opportunity to, to think in terms of how they behave only in a sort of way of I don't know. We do live in a hyper uh, aware uh, world in which I do think that people are a lot more used to seeing themselves on screens. And I think that's because of the proliferation of the smartphones and the, uh, the social media apps. So I do think that there are a lot more people that are, you know, sort of performance ready <laughs> as a person earlier on in their life, certainly more than when I was a kid. Um, that being said, uh, it's hard, I think, for people to identify that you know sp- the specifics of things that they want from moment to moment. They might know an over, you know, a sort of a bigger objective, like I want to be a successful actor um, one day. But I don't know necessarily that we are so good at identifying little things that happen as a sort of part of a subconscious monologue that are, is going on in our own heads, which is saying, "I'm hungry right now," or you know. How long is this bonus podcast episode? You know, like there's a there's a inner monologue going on and it is telling you what you want. And it won't lie to you. If you can tap into that, that is going to help you to start identifying individual moments of want that are happening with your character, individual moments of objective. You can break down objectives into very very small pieces. There can be an immediate, there can be an objective on a particular line. But the point is, we want things all the time, and they change from moment to moment to moment. It's always changing. I want this, I want that, I want this, now now I want that. There is also the overall objective. So if it's, you know, if an overall objective for a character is to, you know, I don't know, be a successful actor or to win an Oscar or something, I would still argue that that's not an overall objective. I would say an overall objective would be bigger than that. I would say an overall objective more so than being a a successful actor or winning an Oscar would be, I want people to like me. I want people from all over the world to know I lived and to like me. I would say like that's more of an overall objective. And I think we see that overall objective is the downfall of a lot of people (laughs) in life, Um, particularly the politicians, but also, you know, people who do other things. Um, So the immediate objective is and the relationship between the immediate objective and the overall objective is simply to put one foot in front of the other to try to get to that overall objective. If you, while playing a character, are able to tie individual moments of objective or immediate objective and sort of direct them towards an overall objective, you will do very well. If you make an overall objective your North Star and follow it, we will follow you.
you know those characters and things that people say like, oh, I hate their character. But, you know, but they love the performance. Yeah, characters don't necessarily need to be likable, but they need to be compelling. We need to know why. Why are they that way? We don't have to like them, but we can love to hate them. So long as the actor and the writer has figured out what does that character want. Potentially the most important part of the entire acting process. All right, moving on. Obstacles. Just because your character wants something, does that mean that they get it? Not necessarily. That's what can, you know be part of the elements that make a great tragedy is when somebody wants something, but they don't get it. Obstacles, uh, I've sort of broken into sort of four or five categories. Um, the character themselves, their character's past, you know, their what happened to them in their upbringing, their past traumatic events, issues like self-loathing or self-doubt, personal obstacles, you know, the character is, you know, drunk or, or they're hung over for a job interview or something, that could be an obstacle within the character themselves. Objects in the scene. You know, uh, I'm trying to do this podcast recording, but my phone starts blowing up, you know, and making a lot of noise. That's an object in a scene that could become an obstacle. Time constraints. If you are a working actor and you're or an auditioning actor and you get an audition to audition for one of the major directors, <laughs> this is such a dumb example, and you're in the Silver Lake area for my L.A.-based people. And the audition is in Santa Monica and you have 40 minutes to get there and it's rush hour traffic. That is a time constraint that may prevent you. It will definitely prevent you from getting to that audition on time. Relationship. You know, a character loves another character, but they don't love them the same way or they don't feel the same way about them. That's an, that's an obstacle in a relationship. And then fifth. I would call society or institutions in which there are, you know, there's institutional bias or things like that that can be an obstacle to your character getting what they are striving for or what they want. Okay, so we've established objectives and we've established obstacles. Now I want to talk a little bit about, okay, so just because your character wants something, how do they go about getting it? And that's where we come to something called uh, dramatic actions. Now, Dramatic actions is one vocabulary expression or uh, word for describing this particular thing, but other acting studios use, or you know, different acting studios use different words to describe dramatic actions. They may call them, I don't know, intentions. Um, you know, the dramatic actions, are, and I think what you'll find with almost any acting technique is that you know, there's a lot of crossover. There are things that, you know, people use different words for, but there there is some overlap with the with some of the major American techniques. So for our purposes, I'm going to call them dramatic actions. And wh what I mean by dramatic actions is not an action like throwing a ball or throwing a punch, but what you're intending to do when you throw that punch. What you intend to do by throwing that punch may be to intimidate someone to bully them some uh, someone. And you want to put dramatic actions in that verb form, the to form, to blank. What do you want to make the other character feel in order to get what your character wants? So we've established that our characters want, want things constantly. Now the question is, what are they doing about it? What are they doing to get what they want? And that's where dramatic actions come in. Choosing actions like bullying, you know, uh, condescending, 
uh, guilting, shaming, um, uh, flirting, seducing, uh, charming, cajoling. Um, there are any number of actions, action words that you can apply to a particular uh, thought in your script. So not only are we thinking in terms of what does my character want right in this moment, and then now what do they want now in this moment, and et cetera, et cetera, but we're also going to, uh, this will give us an ability to start labeling each of these particular moments with what are they doing? What are they doing here? What are they doing there in order to get what they want from moment to moment? So this becomes a great way to start to score your script. And I think, you know, sometimes it's a thing that I hear from people where they say, you know, they have these experiences sometimes where they're in rehearsal or, or even in performance where they're thinking like, I don't know what my character is supposed to be doing right now. Well, this is a good way to label those moments with something specific. You know, I need to use the bathroom and the person in there is taking forever. So I'm going to bang on the door. That's behavior. And I'm going to say, hey, you know, you're taking a long time in there. Those are the words. The dramatic action there might be to guilt them, to shame them in order to get them to get out of the bathroom, give me my turn in there. Okay. <laughs> I hope that's a good example. It, it isn't, but it's one. It's, it's suitable. It's fine. Those are dramatic actions, and those give you the tools now to get you from the beginning to the end of a monologue or a scene. They're the building blocks. I'm going to move on now to rehearsal with a quote, another quote from Stella Adler's book, The Art of Acting. She says, the young actor today tends to be little. They seek to protect their little emotion as they sit comfortably in their little chair in their little blue jeans and stare at their little world that extends from right to left. They've confined themselves to the beat of their generation only. And the result of this is a foreignness to anything around them that isn't immediately recognizable to their everyday habits. It's time to take the blindfold off. I like that quote. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily... We talked talk to the beginning of this uh, saying that acting is supposed to be fun. It's not always meant to be comfortable. Um, but I think that's okay. And I've, again, you know, with, with anything that happens in the, you know, a professional context or a rehearsal context, you know, what an actor feels comfortable with is up to them and setting their own boundaries. Uh, working on a particular role where a character has gone through some extraordinary life experience that the actor themselves has not gone through, they may try different things in order to have a better understanding of how to tell that story. Th those things that they try might not be uh, so comfortable. Or, I don't know, shooting a certain scene. I remember being on set once and talking with a couple of actors and they were talking, They we were, we were all sharing like what was the coldest set that we've ever worked on? What was the hottest set that we've ever worked on? Acting is not always going to be a comfortable activity. Still can be fun. Um... That's physical comfort in terms of thoughts and ideas and themes. You know, the idea of taking the blindfold off. I think, I think there's value in it. I think that there is value in being open to ideas, being open to new information that can be helpful in just creating what I like to call an elastic actor. Actors are the great justifiers. And it's our bodies up there doing it. And I think that's something that, you know, when we talk about uh, brave work. I do think that that is 
a fair part of the conversation. It's our bodies doing it, whether we're up there crying or we're doing a stunt where we're jumping off some building. It's it's our bodies doing it. What's brave about being an actor? You know, you could argue there's a lot of vanity in it. You could argue that, um, you know, for a lot of actors, it seems to be mostly about... Uh, having a big following on social media and selling scarves that they, you create or something. And that's fine. You know, but actors get dumped on a lot because of things like vanity and narcissism. And there can be some good reason for that. The thing that actors, I think, sometimes can do for others is to express something that somebody out in the audience thought that they were the only person living with that particular problem. And they feel incredibly alone in their own struggle. And if they see somebody else represent that for them, we talk about conversations like representation matters. Uh, This, I think, is a little bit part of what we mean when we say, when people talk about brave work. Um, And it's not the whole thing. But I think that is, I think that's maybe just one element of it. All right, so we're in a rehearsal process and we're now working on Something I talked about earlier, which is exterior work. You've done the research on the given circumstances. You've written down all the facts about your character. You've, you've written down facts about their behavior. You've identified their objective. You understand the obstacles in the way of them getting what they want. You've chosen actions to get you from the beginning of your scene to the end. Now we're talking about exterior work. Now we're talking about the, the walk and talk. Unzipping, some people might say sort of unzipping their their own skin and stepping into the skin of the character or stepping into the shoes, that's a little less creepy, of the characters. You know, bringing all the work that you did in your homework with you. You're going to make specific choices about the way they behave, any, you know, uh, regional accent they might have and pay attention to, you know, the, the way in which folks dress or... Be aware of uh, the circumstances in terms of social norms of a particular time period, etc., etc. That's the merging with the character part. That's the, you know, what sometimes people will call sort of that transformational acting work. Um, Imagination and improvisation. I think that at this point, you should combine the text with your own imagination to help to create your character. So, you know, I think of it like watercolor, you know, all the stuff that we've done uh, up to this moment with given circumstances and character and uh, objectives and obstacles and dramatic actions. It's sort of like each one of those subjects is kind of like uh, a coat of watercolor paints. And for folks who have used watercolor before, you understand that once you do a coat, like, you know, if you're going to do a beach scene and you want to start with the water, you have to let the water dry before you go back to paint the beach. So I think all the homework that you've done so far, you do that work and then you've let that dry, you've let that sink in, and then you add, you continue to add layers. Is that a good analogy? I hope so. All right. We're going to talk about imagination and improvisation. So now you're combining the text with your own imagination to create the character. Fill in the blanks about your character. That makes sense, right? We've talked already about having this 24-7 idea of who your character is. Well, how do you do that? You use some of those questions I was referring to earlier to ask yourself who is the character in, you know, in terms of what we don't see on the page. 
There's a great book called uh, Backwards and Forwards, which I think is written by David Ball. And he was a teacher over at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, I believe. And Backwards and Forwards, is he wrote it as a technical manual for reading plays. And he does a great dissection of the character of Hamlet. Talking a little bit about how this is not a young, confused, or he might be confused, but this this character is not necessarily uh, so-called crazy or, or even potentially suicidal. There's a speech he get the to be or not to be speech is done in the presence of Polonius, who is spying on Hamlet. And there isn't, you know, David Ball's reading on that is that this is a guy who's just trying to make other people think he's crazy or think that he's about to end his own life in order to throw them off the scent while he investigates whether Claudius killed his father. I like that book, Backwards and Forwards. One of the things that's written in that book is this idea that there is no character that is completely full. That each character is essentially a skeleton. So we add to it our interpretation, and that's how we fill out the character. And that's part and parcel of what I'm talking about here. I just wanted to say part and parcel. I don't think that was a proper use of that. I love to do that in <laughs> in my life. Just throw out those SAT words and phrases without really knowing what I'm talking about. Can a work ever be fully completed? A script? A performance? Actors who are doing, you know, they've done a thousand performances of the same Broadway show, they're still learning things in that 1,000th performance about the character. They're still going like, oh, that's how you say that line. Painters, do they ever finish a painting? It was once said that, no, they just you know, or a script, you just walk away. So don't be afraid to add your ideas and your interpretation to who you think the character is and let that fill out your performance. And that's using, in sometimes and in part, using improvisation and imagination. Should you improvise and go off the script? That's a good question. It really depends. Some television shows, they want you to improvise. They want you to go right off script. That's, that's sort of relatively new in the TV world. In some movies, particularly going back to like the 1970s, they would have completely improvised scenes under the, you know, the uh, oversight of the director. Um, and then there are those writers where you don't want to get, you don't want to mix around their words because they, you know, are very, the words that they write are precious and they... They're also great at construction, and you don't need to ad-lib everything. You might get in trouble, but I think it really comes down to a particular production and what that creative team is trying to do in terms of collaboration. But imagination, behavior of the character, is it funny to knock something over on the way to, you know, as you, as you make a cross, if it says something about the character being clumsy? You know, you can script write in that way, too. That's using your imagination and improvisation. Bringing yourself up to the character. So you've already brought the character down to you by connecting to the scene with your personal substitution work. Now bring yourself up to the character. So, for example, if the character is a sous chef and the scenes that you're doing take place in a restaurant, you may want to practice cutting vegetables at home. You know how they do. Those professional chefs and sous chefs and cooks, when they, when they cut vegetables, it's smooth beautiful you don't know how to do that that's something you can try at home like i said the great justifiers actors have to be able to do everything juggle (laughs) 
cut vegetables like a like a professional chef, kick a soccer ball in the corner of a goal. You know, we make the seemingly impossible and insurmountable feel real. Acting's not a competition. Everything must be done for the good of the film or else everybody loses. That's Michael Caine in a great book that he wrote called Acting in Film. Acting is a collaborative effort. Whether you're working with the director or other actors, you know, starting, let's start with actors. You you need to listen and to react. So if you make your own plan for how something's going to go in a scene and then the actor you're working with who has won an Oscar does something that doesn't work with your little plan, do you stop and say, sorry, I didn't know they were going to do that. Can we go start over? I don't know. Maybe. Most of the time, treat what they're doing in the scene as a gift. Oh, that's interesting. I learned something new from what they're doing. And now I'm going to react to that. That's listening and reacting. This character is uh, my mother. I'm going to come in and give her a hug. I go over to her and the Oscar-winning actress playing her recoils from my hug. And I think, oh, shit. I've done something wrong. But I don't stop the scene. I think, oh, I realize I hugged my the, the character of my aunt before I hugged the character of my mother. And my mother and my aunt are fighting. Maybe that's the gift that you learn in that particular moment. You don't know what your scene partner is going to do in a particular moment. You cannot plan for all possibilities. So you bring all of your homework with you to set. And you go into the unknown as a team. That's collaboration. Can you say my character would never do that? To the director. That's been a debate for a long time. Director saying, like, try this. And some actor saying, yeah, but my character would never do that. Yeah. You sure? Do you know for sure that in a moment of crisis that you're going to do the right thing? You might think to yourself, I hope I would. But I don't know that you know. And you know yourself better than anybody. More so than the character. Maybe a director or casting director likes you, but they want to see if you'll work well together on set for 10 hours a day. I think the most important thing that you can have is trust. And trust needs to be earned on the part of the director and on the part of the actors and everybody else, the crew and everyone working on a production. Trust is important. If you trust the director you're working with, try what they're asking you to do. You never know. You might discover that you learned something cool about the character. Try to be able to, you know, try many things. It's a collaborative process, and the answers about character and story, oftentimes they come from working as a team. That's the end of our first bonus episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that there was some information here that was useful to you. Remember to subscribe to the podcast if you liked anything that you heard today. Give us those sweet five-star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our merch for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle at things are going great for me. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editor is Sierra Hauser. Kids are home.
timed this out perfectly. See you next time. Dum, 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 dum.